Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about cognitive immunity, the moral mind of critical thinkers. My first guest is Dr. Andy Norman, and this episode originally aired in June of 2021. Andy authored the popular Brainstorm column for the Humanist Network News and works at understanding how ideologies corrupt moral understanding. His work has appeared in Free Inquiry Essays in the Philosophy of Humanism and dozens of other journals. Andy lives in Pittsburgh with his wife of 20 years, two fascinating kids, and a dog. And Andy is in the house talking about his newest book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. That's like practically a prayer. <laughs> uh, that was a lovely introduction. Thank you, Lisa. Well, that's that's all you. And I'm I'm really excited to talk about your book, Mental Mental Immunity, um, oh, me too. because boy, oh boy, oh boy, I feel like the last few years have really messed with our brains and our mental fitness. Ain't that the truth? Yeah. yeah. Here's the basic idea: just as our bodies have immune systems that protect us from one or another to one or another degree from infectious microbes. Our minds, it turns out, have immune systems that protect us, again, to one or another degree uh, from infectious ideas. Um, scientists are increasingly talking about infectious ideas and infectious ideologies as mind parasites. And they're coming to the conclusion that infodemics are a real phenomenon that can skew our thinking in ways that harm us all. And the good news is that we can actually hack the mind's immune system for good in the same way that immunologists uh, use vaccines to hijack the body's immune system and give us deeper immunity to infectious microbes. Oh, gosh, tell us how. <laughs> we, we, we are in sore need of some of that. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, let me try to make this idea of the mind's immune system real to you. And then when I get to the how, it'll actually be that much more convincing. We're all um, ears. All right. So Lisa, maybe you can do a thought experiment with me. Uh, pick something that you're really proud of or something that's really precious to you. And, and let me know what it is. Oh, gosh, I'm, I'm so proud of my kids' success in being decent human beings. So proud. Okay, terrific. Terrific start. Now, imagine going online one day and seeing that some troll online has been tearing down one of your children, just um, calling them insignificant, tearing down their characters. 
Now, try to imagine that as vividly as you can, and then ask yourself, what happens in your mind when you see something like that? Well, I want to question, you know, is it real? Is it not real? I want to go to, to that child or children and say, you know, like, like what, what's up with this? Tell me more about this. Why is this out there? Beautiful, beautiful. So the so questions swarm into your mind, like, you know, who is this guy anyway? Yeah. And uh, who let this jerk onto the Internet? Right. And yeah. and uh, where's he getting his information? Because it's surely bad and his logic must be terrible. Right. These are all questions that just swarm into the mind when we're confronted with threatening information. Now, what you've just done, Lisa, so that's the mind's immune system at work, bringing questions to bear to protect it the mind against a threat. Now, and the thought experiment we've just done is exactly like the thought experiment that a Russian zoologist conducted in 1908 when he d- actually discovered the body's immune system or actually the agents of the body's immune system. The guy's name is Eli Mechnikov. And what he did is he took a starfish and he stabbed it with a tangerine thorn and he stuck it under a microscope and he watched as white blood cells rushed to the scene of the injury and and engulfed the tip of the thorn and tried to basically consume it, tried to neutralize it. Mm. And Mechnikov actually won a Nobel Prize for this discovery. And my claim is that questions and doubts and reservations are the mind's antibodies in the same way that white blood cells, T cells, B cells are the body's antibodies. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yes. So what you're saying is doubt, critical thinking, curiosity, these are all the ingredients that are required to build this mental immunity. Exactly. They're the, they're the heart of the mind's immune system. That's exactly right. And one of the really exciting things about this is that the is that critical thinking skills, which have actually been sort of the emphasis of higher education for close to a century now, they actually turn out to be a small part of the mind's immune system. And so we've, we haven't been doing enough to give people deep immunity to bad ideas. <laughs> and as a result, right, we're, we're witnessing... Uh, you know, contagions of irrationality spread across the internet in ways that are tearing at the social fabric. Not just across the internet, you know, it's within families. I mean, this, this, this is dirty business that's going on. That's right. And, and, you know, um, Bad ideas have spread through social networks for thousands of years. Uh, this is not something new in the, since the internet was invented. Um, the philosophers that I've studied much of my life were real deeply concerned about uh, irrationality and how uh, ideologies, um, how infectious ideas can actually – they didn't use this – Philosophers have only begun to use the language of infection and inoculation recently, but going all the way back to Plato and Socrates, you know, they could, they could watch crazy thinking spread through ancient Athens and they were wondering, what do we do about this? And Socrates, one of my heroes, came up with the famous Socratic method, which is a way of using questions to, number one, calm the mind's immune system, and number two, actually build and deepen our immunity so in the book, I actually take the uh, famous Socratic method and I say, hey, it's time for an upgrade. Um, we can take this. It's a, the, 
Socratic, Socratic method is arguably one of the most powerful mind inoculants of all time, but we can enhance it because we now have all this evidence coming out of psychology that helps us understand how the mind's immune system works. And if you take that knowledge and you apply it, you can actually take the Socratic method to the next level and turn it into a, mind, a powerful mind vaccine that can deepen our immunity to all kinds of morally disorienting ideas. Well, what you're saying makes sense. If we look at how the mind works and when we are in fear or when we are anxious and the disconnected, the disconnection from mm. sort of the executive functions of the prefrontal cortex, right? We're sort of yes. operating in this fight or flight mode. And when mm. people get heated about some of the garbage that is out there, you know, Exactly. They, they are in that state of fear and uncertainty. And so that's what's propelling. That's the juice. I think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. And you're saying it so well yourself, Lisa. <laughs> the brain has two separate systems that kind of work in opposite directions to try to maintain a certain balance. The sympathetic nervous system kicks in when we feel a threat and it's it puts us in fight, flight or, fight or flight mode, right? And when... In your in our thought experiment, you know, some troll online was attacking your son's or your daughter's character, you know, that triggers the sympathetic nervous system and makes us want to fight back. And it makes our mind's immune system want to fight back. But it turns out you can't think clearly or fairly when that part of your brain is taking control. Yeah. Um, but there's another system in the brain called the parasympathetic system that actually it's kind of the rest and and recover. Uh, system in the brain. And when you actually use dialogue and quest and non-threatening questions to, to uh, calm the mind and slip it from the, from the sympathetics in charge to the parasympathetics in charge, you can actually begin to induce the sort of uh, judicious critical thinking that we all need to live together on this small, fragile planet. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you're saying, and I'm thinking of sort of the application of it, you know, the, the really being in action with this stuff. And for example, I'll, I'll give a very simple example. I have a, a relative who shall remain nameless. You know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And when I ask this relative or two or three to explain to me that, you know, why they believe what they believe around a certain set of political stories mm -hmm. and they get so passionate and heated yes. and fired up yes. and angry, but they cannot explain yes. a word with facts. Um, you're actually doing exactly the right thing, Lisa. Um, so all the research shows that, uh, so I, I call this the, the cranky uncle problem. And I, and I borrowed, I got borrowed one of those. that. Yeah, I got one of those. yeah, don't we all, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, actually, I borrowed the name from a, a critical thinking app that one of my colleagues has developed. It's where you get to interact with a cranky uncle um, and trying to, you try to figure out what to say to your cranky uncle. And if you say the wrong things, he gets even crankier. And if you say the right things, it calms him down and actually helps open his mind, perhaps just a little, to actually learning Ooh. and, and so it's kind of cool. I'd recommend you check it out. Yeah. What's the name of that? It's called, well, it's called Cranky Uncle and John Cook uh, is the, is the brain behind it. He's done a lot of research on mind inoculation against. Maybe we have to have Uncle John come on the show. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, who'll talk about his cranky uncle, maybe. Yes. Um, he could be my, my adopted uncle. <laughs> uncle John, the voice of reason. <laughs> right. Well, well, so an app, though, an app can can you know, nudge you in the right direction on how to, how to have these difficult yeah. conversations. But there's actually a lot of, uh, that an app can't do to teach you, um, how to converse in a constructive way. Um, now Lisa, I think you have excellent instincts on this. Um, if you just, add, if you just kind of, my wife encourages me to call it the tell me more method. So yes. I, I it, tell I, me I more. It, <laughs> I call it the new, the new Socratic method. Cause I want to emphasize my my continuity to my philosophical forebearers. And your scholarly etiquette. Yeah, that too, right. (laughs) (laughs) And scholarly pretension, maybe that's part of it as well. Well, I wasn't going to say that, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, just, um, you know, listening to your cranky uncle and just say, tell me more and letting them struggle to articulate their passionate views is in some ways so the kind of conversation that can open a mind, a closed mind, is one that holds up a mirror so that the person can actually see the glitches in their own worldview. And if you point out those glitches, they're typically, they're probably going to dig their heels in and push back and get angry. But if you just listen and, and ask uh, clarifying questions, a lot of times they'll start to see the gaps in their own understanding themselves. And that's the kind of opening... uh, you need to create if you're going to reach people like that. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Andy Norman about his latest book, Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. To learn more, please visit andynorman.org on Twitter at Dr. Andy No, and on Facebook, Andy Norman. We'll take that brief pause and then get back to the conversation with Andy Norman. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back continuing the conversation with Andy Norman. We're talking about cognitive immunity, the moral mind of critical thinkers. And this episode originally aired in June of 2021. Andy, I want to talk about how our mental immune systems Mm -hmm. have been compromised. You know, the forces Mm -hmm. out there in the world that has sort of seen the uh, fragility, you know, Mm -hmm of our our thinking or maybe our way of life and then tapped right into it, like with laser precision. Yes. Yeah. So the deep story behind our weird post-truth world is a story of, of neglect and abuse. So it turns out we've actually been neglecting our mental immune health for decades. And I'll just, let me just give one example. In the book, I identified six ideas that have have taken root in most of our minds and which diminish our mental immunity. One of them is the idea that everyone is entitled to their opinion. Now, this idea has a long history and it's subscribed to both on the left and on the right. And it induces kind of a a culture of entitlement. You know, I'm entitled to my beliefs. Get out of my face. Um, (laughs) Right. The problem with that is that there's an there's a 
confusion between legal right or legal entitlement and a moral right or moral entitlement. So I might be legally entitled to misogynistic viewpoints or you know white supremacist nonsense, but I'm not morally entitled to those things. No. And if I use the idea that I'm entitled to my opinions to defend irresponsible believing, I'm actually compromising my own mental immune health. Uh, because a healthy, a healthy immune system will examine your own ideas, your own beliefs, and modify them where necessary. And when you use excuses like everyone is entitled to their opinion to evade your responsibility to cultivate and nurture your mind properly, you end up being a sitting duck for propagandists and, and demagogues. And that's the other piece of the story. I mentioned abuse and ne neglect and abuse. Second part of the story is the abuse, right? Yeah. There are people in our culture who actually are very adept at hijacking mental immune systems and feeding you a bunch of nonsense for political or economic gain. Uh, and until we learn to protect ourselves against such things, we're in for a really rough time. I agree with you. And something that you said, you know, about beliefs really brought this thought to mind that beliefs, thoughts, and feelings are not facts. They're mm. our own, Right. So they're unimpeachable. Those those experiences that we have of, of belief, thought and feelings. Right. We can take ownership of what they are, but they are, in fact, not fact. And, and one of the most uh, powerful things you can do to keep your beliefs, feelings, uh, attitudes uh, healthy is to to check them against the facts, to yes. see, what, see whether <laughs> they're coherent with the evidence, right? You, you've probably heard Daniel Patrick Moynihan's favorite, uh, famous quote, uh, everyone is entitled to their opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts, right? Yes. Um, I cite that approvingly, but I think it actually doesn't go far enough. It's true that we need to acknowledge facts and let facts and evidence modify our belief systems. But it's also true that our values be responsibly chosen and held. So it's not okay to say uh, facts are constrained by evidence, but but you can but you can have whatever values you darn well please. That's just not enough to give us deep immunity to, in fact, um, morally disorienting ideas are often the tip of the wedge that leads us into science denial and and fact resistant thinking. Well, we're we're in it now, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every day we we all see evidence of this, and I would say it, regardless of what side of the aisle or what side of conspiracy one may or may not be on, I think everybody's pointing the finger at one another, but the morality, mm. you're at the values that you talk about, maybe that is that that's the weak link, right? We don't spend enough time in schools and in our yes. homes maybe talking about this moral compass that we all agree upon that exists so we can all be in society together. Yeah. And, you know, Socrates way 2,400 years ago basically wandered the streets saying, hey, uh, just having deep conversations about what really matters, that's the best possible life. And I was like, yeah, sure, Socrates, that's a pretty self-congratulatory thing to say. But I've actually come around to the view that we all need to do a whole lot more of that. That when you do take time to discuss your values with friends 
in a in a non competitive non uh, combative way your moral understanding deepens and you become a better version of yourself a better wiser version of yourself and when we don't make time to have those conversations to examine our values and our and modify them in light of what we learn in the process we're shortchanging ourselves because a much happier existence is out there waiting for us if we just make time to have those conversations and conduct them in a fruitful way. Let's talk about vaccinating ourselves against mm -hmm. mind parasites. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Where do we find this? <laughs> well, the mind vaccine is, uh, I develop it in chapter 12 of the book, Mental Immunity, but I'll give you, the, give you the short version of it now. So philosophers have known for a long time that critical but also friendly conversation uh, is the way to uh, deepen your mind's resistance to bad ideas. That, that goes way back. What we have now are the tools of immunology um, and, a, and an emerging science of what I call cognitive immunology to actually sharpen the techniques that philosophers have long used. So what I call the new Socratic method takes the method of, of questioning that Socrates recommended, um, urges us to do it in gentle, affirming ways. Socrates, by the way, uh, had a bit of a taste for uh, gotcha moments, and he would sometimes <laughs> use questions to kind of um, to make people look silly, right? Um, and some of my philosophical colleagues love that kind of thing. But I actually think it's counterproductive. When you use questions to produce gotcha moments, people become more resistant to to revising their thinking. But if you use questions, primarily clarifying questions, to just try to understand people's point of view and let them know they're heard and to encourage them to actually, just nudge them gently to actually answer the kind of questions that it clearly makes sense to ask, given that they're saying X, Y, or Z. When you do that, they start to become more reflective themselves and their own mental immunity starts to grow. So I'm gonna just, rephrase or paraphrase what you just said, because what I'm also hearing is the ability to be a deep listener, a good listener, and mm -hmm. ask these powerful open-ended questions or specific questions, you know, or just questions in general in yes. a non-judgmental way, that it is really that element that builds our immunity. Yeah. And, and so at the very heart of good critical thinking is you encounter an idea that you're not sure is true or a claim that you're, you think you disagree with. The number one thing a philosopher learns to do in a situation like that is suspend judgment first. Yep. Number two, you know, ask the kind of questions that it makes sense to ask, um, and then look at the reasons pro and con uh, on both sides. You can't just look at the reasons on one side and think that you've settled the matter. And then preferably in conversation with somebody who views things differently, you, you try to sum up what you've learned from each other into a kind of a, an, a more nuanced judgment about whether the original claim was right, wrong, or in need of refinement. So, yes, you have to actually suspend judgment and then and then try to find out when you when you assume you already know <laughs> and you just go straight towards, you know, condemning or or judging other people, um, you miss out on opportunities to learn. But if you suspend judgment in the way that you say, uh, you 
you hold open the door to becoming a deeper, wiser, and happier person. Yeah. And, and you know that that curiosity that you express towards another person ultimately builds connection, which is mm-hmm. which is, you know, the life force. That's what we're here to do is yeah. be and connected. It, it, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, quite apart from the joys and uh, I mean, n- nothing promotes happiness more than, you know, strong friendships. I think the research out of social psychology is pretty clear about that. Yeah. But one thing we're learning about mental immunity is that deepening mental immunity is a team sport. You can't go off into your own bubble or into a bubble of like-minded people and build deep mental immunity. You have to have conversations with people who disagree with you and you have to listen to their concerns because a lot of times their concerns are bringing relevant considerations to light. And until you've appreciated them and given them due weight, you're depriving yourself of wisdom. And I think we can all agree that making the cranky uncle smile feels pretty good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a metaphor, of course, but when we can sort of find that, when we can find Rumi's field, you know, in those conversations. Yeah. And you want to, and, and ideally you get cranky uncle to smile before you raise anything like a question that might, that might uh, cause him consternation or, or you know, get him anxious, right? You win, you win somebody's trust. It's the research again and again shows that if somebody doesn't trust you, the things you say won't affect them. So you have to win their trust first, and then you, you have the right to begin to change their minds on, on deeper fundamental issues. Oh, this is, this is such good stuff. This is, you know, um, for me, and I hope for, for everyone out there who is listening, food for thought around your dinner table tonight, as it will be around mine. The book we're talking about today is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. And that's probably should be a blessing for everybody. <laughs> that, <laughs> that my guest and the author, Andy Norman, blesses you with all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the blessing business, but I, I try to help. <laughs> uh, but, you, know, you know what I'm saying. This is the antidote to, I think, where we've been for the last several years and coming out the other side and seeing some light to have these deeper, meaningful conversations. To learn more about Andy Norman and his work, blessing, no blessing, doesn't matter. Go to andynorman.org on Twitter at Dr. Andy No, and on Facebook, he is at Andy Norman author. Once again, the book we've been speaking about is Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy, thanks so much for sharing your work with us today. This is really good stuff. Thank you, Lisa. And and thank you to your listeners for their attention and consideration. We'll take a brief pause and we'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We're back continuing the conversation about cognitive immunity, the moral mind of critical thinkers. My next guest is Dr. Alan Buchanan, and this episode originally aired in November of 2021. 
Alan Edward Buchanan, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Arizona and also professor of the philosophy of international law at the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's College, London. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1975 and now researches at the University of Arizona. We're talking about his book, Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. Welcome, Professor Buchanan. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, this is this is a big subject and one that I think we've probably explored in roundabout ways in the last couple of years or the maybe the last few years. But I want to tackle this head on because let's first of all define what you mean by tribalism. OK, I think we can begin by saying what tribalism is not. It's not the same as polarization. You hear a lot about polarization. Well, as I understand it, polarization just means that, say, you and I have serious disagreements on social and political matters. But that's not tribalism. Tribalism isn't just disagreement. It's a matter of regarding the person you disagree with as the other and denigrating and even demonizing them and not listening to them, holding them in contempt. That's by tribalism. And tribalism really involves what I call sorting and signaling. You sort the world into us versus them. You treat all of them as if they're exactly alike. There's no differences among them. And you signal your allegiance to your own tribe and the fact that you're not part of this other group. And so what looks like real conversation argument really isn't at all. It's just sorting and signaling. Which is a very like a primal kind of of response that we have to one another. Of course it is. You know, that's an interesting point. From an evolutionary standpoint, you can understand why humans are groupish beings and why it's very important for them to sort the world into us versus them. I mean, think about the conditions under which the moral mind was formed by the forces of evolution, perhaps 450,000 or more years ago, there are widely scattered, very small groups of hunter-gatherer human beings. And if you're out on the savanna and you encounter another human being, the first thing you want to know is whether it's one of us or one of them. Right. And people evolve ways of, of determining this by distinctive headdress, paint and coloration on the body, and of course, language differences. But you want to know whether that creature is one of us or one of them, because your life may depend upon it under those conditions. Now, those are the conditions in which our moral mind was formed. And so we, we have a kind of what I call a kind of Pleistocene hangover. As there are still vestiges of, of adaptations that were really quite valuable in that early, harsh, peculiar environment, but they've stuck with us. And they can sometimes play out in very damaging ways under modern conditions. In fact, I think tribalism is destroying democracy in this country. Thank you for saying that, because this is something that there have been conversations within my household and within friends, friend groups talking about this. And I would love for you to share how tribalism plays out in our government, in the political system, and how it places democracy at risk? Well, the first thing is that it's an element of the tribal mentality to think that 
every political issue is related to every other political issue and that the political division is a life or death matter, that we're in a kind of supreme emergency. I mean, I'm thinking of the title of Sean Hannity's latest book. It's entitled Live Free or Die, America <laughs> on Rank. Okay. Now, if you can convince yourself or other people that you're in a kind of supreme emergency, then you're ready to suspend the normal moral rules. That's the first consequence. And then you get a kind of race toward the bottom. In other words, tribalism involves viewing everything as a zero-sum game for the highest stakes. What my group wins, you lose. There's no common interest. There's no mutual benefit possible. And this is the death of democracy, because in democracy, you have to be willing to bargain and compromise and meet people in the middle and look for a common interest. But if you start out with the assumption that we're just inevitably opposed enemies and that everything is for the highest stakes, you can't get bargaining and compromise. And of course, you can't get bargaining and compromise if you don't listen to the other. If instead you just dismiss them as either being incredibly stupid or as being incredibly insincere. And let's give you a couple of concrete examples of this, okay? Have you ever heard the term libtard, L-I-B-T-A-R-D? I have heard the, the word libtard. Well, Maybe I'm one of them. I don't know. <laughs> well, I've been called one. It's just a matter of labeling a whole group of people as if they were all the same, namely liberals, and saying basically that they're mentally deficient. Well, if they're really seriously mentally deficient, there's really no point in trying to talk to them as an adult. Now, that's one strategy. The other strategy is to say, well, maybe they're not mentally deficient, but they're just incredibly insincere and morally corrupt. And here's an example of that. Okay, uh, The late Rush Limbaugh used to repeatedly say that Democrats and liberals don't really care about migrants. They just want to let them in because they know they'll vote Democratic. Now, this is a very <laughs> preposterous. <laughs> it means that you don't have to engage with any of the substantive issues about immigration. Instead, you just brand the people who hold a different view on immigration from you as being totally insincere, as not meaning the word they say. So it's always a matter of attacking the character of the speaker rather than listening to the of the speech. Yes, yes. Here's, here's an example from the left, okay? This happens all too frequently on American college campuses. There'll be an announcement that somebody's going to be a speaker, some lecturers coming in. And then there's a movement by some students to prevent the person from speaking. Okay, the, An example of this recently was there was a professor of geophysics who was coming to give a talk on geophysics uh, to, to MIT. And someone found out that on social media, he had posted something which called into question whether affirmative action was really working very well. Well, because of that, he was banned from speaking on a geophysical topic at MIT. So the idea was, because we put this guy in the box of being a racist, right? We sorted him to be a racist because he has some doubts about whether affirmative action is working. Then he doesn't have the privilege of speaking in public at our university. Again, it's always a matter of attacking the person rather than yeah. 
and of what they're saying. And it's very convenient because then you don't have to, to really engage in the hard work of critical thinking and argumentation. Well, yes, there's the ab- abdication of agency, right? It's that I'm no longer in charge of my life, right? I, I am just, I'm, I'm a member of that tribe or that club, and therefore this is how it's done. You know, that's it's really important what you just said about giving up your agency. The way I would frame it is that tribalism is the death of individuality in two different ways. For one thing, when you sort people into the other, you homogenize. You say they're all the same. You deny the individuality of the members of that group, whether they're liberals or conservatives. You just treat them all alike. And that's really an insult. That's disrespectful because within any political grouping, whether it's liberals or conservatives, libertarians, progressive, social democrats, whatever, there are always differences of opinion. But in fact, in the tribalistic mode, you deny all of that. So you deny the individuality. You treat the other as a bunch of sheep. But then again, you act like a sheep with respect to your own group, too, because if you express any disagreement with the prevalent view in your group, you may be branded as a traitor. You may be expelled from the group and regarded as one of them, as the other. And so it represses your individuality and it leads you to deny the individuality of the other. And I think this is incredibly disrespectful. I mean, part of what it is to be respectful of human beings is to recognize that they are individuals, that they're unique, that they have their own views. And it's a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. If you act like a sheep and treat the other as a bunch of mindless, robotic, totally homogeneous sheep, then that's the way things will operate. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, we're going to continue this wonderful conversation that I'm really enjoying with you. My guest today is Professor Alan Buchanan. To learn more about his work and our moral fate, evolution, and the escape from tribalism, please go to the University of Arizona Department of Philosophy and check out Professor Alan Buchanan. We'll pause briefly and then get back to it with Alan Buchanan. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. continuing the conversation with Alan Buchanan that originally aired in November of 2021. We're talking about cognitive immunity, the moral mind of critical thinkers. Professor, before the break, we were talking about defining really what tribalism is and how it puts people in that state of you're not like me and therefore you are a discounted person and not worthy of my attention or my time. And I want to talk about 
what drives that, the underlying emotion that drives us apart like this? I think there are really two emotions. One is positive and the other is negative. One is just our desire to belong, right? And to have a group identity. We're groupish beings. And there's an story that explains that. That in itself is not bad. But the other is fear. The other motivation is fear. I think often we have demagogues who are very good at creating fear in people and then directing the fear toward the other, that is making the other the the source, the target of the fear. Now, look, in in our world, there there are lots of reasons to be fearful or anxious. The the pace of social change is incredible. It's a new world every day when you wake up and people are being dislocated because of changes in the global economy. There are huge changes in our understanding of gender, of our understanding of family, of sexuality. You know, the ground is shifting beneath our feet. And some people are much less comfortable with that than others. Some people have tremendous anxiety about change. And in some cases, it's perfectly understandable. I mean, if you're a a, a middle-aged white male, you've been working in manufacturing all your life, you lose your job because of changing global economy, now the goods are being produced in China, then you lose wealth, you lose status, you lose your sense of, of who you are. And also, let's face it, uh, all of the things that you and I regard as progressive, probably like the civil rights movement and the women's rights movement, they create losers. They they diminish the status of some people and make them insecure. Now, when there's all of this insecurity and fear out there, it's very, the situation is ripe for someone to come along and say, I feel your pain and I know who's causing it. It's those people. Right. Side with me and you'll be safe. That's right. This is exactly the way it works. And fear is an incredibly powerful human motivator. And listen, there's a kind of stock set of words and images that demagogues have used to create fear in people and direct hostility toward another group. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but there's a horrible propaganda film by Joseph Goebbels called The Eternal Jew. And it begins with a shot of thousands of rats swarming out of the hold of a, of a ship. Okay. Now, this is one of the, the metaphors that's used to generate genocidal motivation. That is looking at the other as like a bearer of, of infectious disease. Yes, vermin. Okay. <laughs> vermin. Right. Now, yeah. look, this happened on Fox and Friends about two years ago. One of the talking heads said that the caravan of people coming from Central America trying to cross the southern border was carrying smallpox. Now, look, I remember that. I actually remember that. The last recorded case of smallpox, a single case, was in 1970 in Somalia. In 1977, the World Health Organization proclaimed that smallpox no longer existed on planet Earth, with the possible exception of some bioweapons lab, right? Right. So the say that these people were carrying smallpox, completely unfounded, but it's exactly the stock and trade of tribalism to say that. Okay. The other is presented as a parasite, as a dangerous, infectious agent, either literally bringing diseases, or they're going to be parasites feeding on our welfare system taking jobs away from from us, et cetera. So 
those images of of the other as a, a disease carrying rodent or vermin, an infectious agent, these are primal images that still work to evoke fear and hostility. Let's pivot for a second, if we can, over to this moral hygiene makeover. This, and I just made that up. But like, what are some things that we can do as humans, as solid citizens, as caring people who believe, and I like to believe that there are a lot of us out there that believe that the values and the wants and desires of the other matter just as much as my own. What can we do? How can we help turn this tide? Well, I think there are two different pathways. And one of them is just as an individual to be skeptical and to try not to immerse yourself in a group. Now, one way you can do this is by avoiding the echo chamber effect of the internet, right? The echo chamber effect has been documented in psychological studies. What happens is that if people just listen to other people who hold the same political views, all of their views become more and more extreme over time. If they're yeah. like a, a sealed chamber, and when you say something, it echoes, it becomes louder and louder. And louder. <laughs> people do this. They seek out on the internet only those sources of, quote, information that already resonate with the beliefs that they have. The technical name for this is confirmation bias, okay? You hold a certain view and you only look for evidence that seems to support it and you systematically avoid evidence that goes against it, okay? So you can try to be more open-minded by looking at different sources of information and you can also stop and ask yourself, well, wait a minute, Am I lumping everybody together? Am I saying that, you know, all Trump supporters are white supremacists? Or on the other side, am I saying that all liberals are communist in disguise? You can do that. <laughs> okay, I, I was I have a, a second home in the mountains of, of Arizona, and I was uh, introduced to somebody right before the election. And he said, uh, you know, if Biden wins, they're going to turn this into a communist country. Now, it wasn't clear to me that he knew what communism was, but the, 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 what he was doing was he was sort of feeling me out. He was seeing my, my, my reaction. He was sending a signal of which tribe he belonged to. Yes. And, uh, let me give you another example of this. Okay. Here's and if one. your gun was loaded in your truck, you know? <laughs> and, and the thing is, tribalism is totalizing. It makes everything political. Think about mask wearing. Okay. I was, I was in my neighborhood here in Tucson a few months ago and I uh, stepped out the door and I, I, I had a mask on because I had just, just driven home from the university. I just hadn't taken it off yet. And a neighbor looked at me and said, Oh, I see you voted for Biden. What? Yeah. He <laughs> thought because I was wearing a mask, it means that I was voting for Biden. So that was your dog whistle. <laughs> everything becomes a tribal issue. Everything becomes political, even mask wearing. 
things that should just be completely neutral as to your political standpoint, like basic public health measures, now become partisan issues. There's a sense in which tribalism just invades every part of life. It used to be that we had this idea that, well, there's the political sphere and then there are other spheres, right? Now, everything is the political sphere. Yeah, yeah. You said during the break, you know, you mentioned that in some cases this divides families, right? Yeah, in my case, it's divided, it's divided my family. Yep, that's true. My family, it's, it ruins friendships, it divides families, and there's no escape from it because anything you say, something that may be perfectly innocent and non-political will be interpreted in a in a divisively political way. It's really taking over our lives. We don't realize it, but it's it's just really distorting everything and it's dominating us. I mean, we're becoming slaves to this tribalistic mentality. Which for me, like from my perspective, I say that you know, that sort of, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself. Like, where, where does this go? Where is this now in, in our in our world? Only love thy neighbor if thy neighbor is part of your tribe, a member of that tribe. And the other ones, you know, can go bang sand. I mean, I, I don't understand it. Well, you know, part of it is the, the, this if the fear becomes so great and people think that we're in a kind of supreme emergency that, you know, the fate of the world or the fate of the oh, country. Yeah. They're coming for us. And some of my family believes that they're coming for us. I say, who's the they? Oh, yeah. I didn't, yeah. Get, I didn't get the memo. Who is the they? <laughs> That's the supreme emergency framing. And yes. when you all the regular moral rules go out the window, let me come back to your question. I sort of diverge a little bit. You said, what can we do about this? And I think one thing is that we can sort of practice a little better uh, belief management in our own case by avoiding the echo chamber effect and by actually trying to listen to people and not constantly just impugning the character of people we disagree with and evading the question of getting down to argument about substantive disagreements. That's one thing to use individuals. But I think it's going to take some institutional changes to try to restore democracy. And here are just a few very simple suggestions. Okay. We need more than two main parties. Yeah, I agree with that. Because yeah. what happens now is you've got to choose one whole bundle or the other whole bundle. And I find a lot of the stuff in both of the bundles repugnant, but I've got to choose one bundle or the other because we right, have so so the less party. evil of the bundles. Yeah. <laughs> you have to sort of hold your nose, right? And go for one bundle or the other. I think if we had more than than one party, we could have more nuanced views and people wouldn't be faced with a choice of one extreme or the other. Now, another thing, another institutional change might be switching to a system of proportional representation. So in, in elections, it's not just winner take all. It's that you have a, you know, a group of people who become the legislators or or members of a cabinet or whatever in proportion to the number of votes they got, not just, you know, winner take all, first past the post like we have now. And that, again, would allow for more diversity of views and, and it wouldn't put people in a position of choosing one big bundle or the other. Another possibility would be to use a supermajority requirement in voting for some decisions. Because if you have a supermajority requirement, what it means is that uh, the people who might win if it was just a bare majority of all at stake 
they're no longer able to just ignore the other people. They have to recruit a certain number of people from the other side in order to get a supermajority, like two thirds or three quarters. And that means they have to listen to them. They have to respond to their needs and interests. They have to bargain and compromise. So those are just some institutional changes. But I think, again, it's going to have to be a combination of changes in individual behavior and institutional changes. And from the standpoint of individual behavior, you've just got to recover your agency and you've got to turn your critical thinking device back on. You know, it's as if we've been anesthetized in that part of our brain. It's, or, it's, or to use computer analogy, our, our critical thinking has been unplugged, disconnected, and we've got to reactivate it. And we've got to just try to put ourselves in the position of the people we disagree with and say, well, maybe just possibly, is there something to what they're saying? Is there some validity? See, the other thing about tribalism is the absolute certainty a certainty that you, your group is right, and the, your group is totally right, and the other group is totally wrong. We so. are out of time, but maybe we can hang out again and talk more about this because you've got me fired up, and I hope our listeners are fired up, and I know you're fired up because you told me so. <laughs> I was already fired up, but you, in, in, you increased the intensity of the flame. Yeah, because this is happiness. You know, to be to be able to talk about this stuff and question each other and listen to each other. This is what creates a happy society. You know, it's like, do you want to be right? Or do you want to be happy? Most people would say, I want both. But when it comes right down to it and you have to pick one or the other, people want to be happy. You know, let me add one last thing on that note. And that is, I'm afraid that a lot of people have become addicted to rage. Yeah. Well, it's a drug, right? rage against the other. And that's not going to make them happy. No. Well, it gets them in a state of instant gratification, right? Because you have all this physiological release of hormones, right? In the body that make you feel good in your own skin temporarily. Yeah. But it's like an addictive drug, right? Yes. 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 Rarely, but it crowds out all of the other more enduring, more wholesome forms of enjoyment and happiness. That's the problem with it. Compassion, empathy, kindness, humor, curiosity, you know, ordinary courage. Right. You know, and maybe that's part of the call to action to have some ordinary courage to think for ourselves and ask a lot of questions to people we don't know. Yeah. Imagine, imagine that (laughs) we got a dash. Professor Alan Buchanan, thank you for sharing your work, your book, Our Moral Fate, Evolution and the Escape from Tribalism. To connect with Professor Buchanan, please go to the University of Arizona Department of Philosophy, check him out, look him up, and just come back again, because I love these kinds of conversations. I would love to come back. Yes, we'll do that. We'll get producer Andrea on it. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Andy Norman and Alan Buchanan, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are.
Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU-RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.